You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Everybody, so excited to be here today. I gotta tell you, I literally just returned from a trip out west uh, to the Badlands and Yellowstone, and I gotta say, wow, was it ever dry. Uh, really? I was staying Tell in Mont- us more. Oh, yeah. Like it's not dry here, right? <laughs> uh, but I, it, I was staying in Montana and South Dakota, and the earth was just parched and cracked. Uh, we did get a tiny bit of rain uh, where I was in Paradise Valley, but it essentially evaporated either before it hit the ground or immediately afterwards. Right. Uh, it had also been you know, really hot, and we're in a drought uh, back here in Minnesota uh, before I left. But even when it was hot and rainless, there were still days that were humid right? Like even if there's no rain. Right. I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing. Uh, In fact, one of our friends who lives out there by Yellowstone uh, had commented on uh, one of the reasons he left the Midwest was that the humidity was so awful and it was something that he just did not miss at all about living here. I certainly love going outside and just standing there and becoming sweaty. Truly a favorite of mine. (laughs) I love that too. It's amazing what we have in common. Yeah, it's it's so lovely. Uh, So as you can imagine, I've been thinking a lot about humidity lately, either because there's been far, far too much of it or uh, far too little. And it occurred to me that for much of my life, humidity was something that kind of confused me. I think maybe my uh, educational science upbringing in school didn't really explain the concept of humidity or water vapor well, or maybe... Maybe. I just wasn't really paying attention. But anyways, uh, even as an adult, it didn't make perfect sense until I took some time to kind of relearn it and learn some interesting things about it. So if you kind of go back into the Wayback Machine here and you think about uh, elementary school or grade school, we all learn about solids and liquids and gases, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think therein lies uh, some of the problem because it's actually a really complex topic that's probably covered uh, far too simply and kind of dumbed down because it's taught at a very young age, sometimes like second or third grade or something like that. So I think we remember, yeah, I think we remember the sort of basic idea that water freezes at zero Mm -hmm. centigrade and Mm -hmm. boils at 100 or 32 and 212 if you're being wacky and using Fahrenheit. (laughs) I know, right? And we talk about water a lot because it's one of those simple things we see a lot. So we tend to understand it. But I think because we use use water as an example, it leads to this idea that um, those two numbers are somehow magic numbers that cause a state change, like when you cross that line. And they are these absolute lines. So we tend to think that water is always frozen below zero. And it doesn't become a gas until it reaches 100 Celsius. And this uh, isn't really correct. I think the misconception uh, from childhood probably threw me off for a good many years. I thought that water turned into a gas at the boiling point, which, let's be fair, it does. Yep. 
It does. But yes. it can it can also turn to a gas and stay a gas at much lower temperatures. Uh-huh. Which I, I don't think we sense. always we think we think about boil what the boiling point is where that transition takes place, but it can take place at many temperatures. We think of uh, water reaching 100 centigrade and then becoming a gas. So the natural logical assumption is that if it goes back under 100, it will revert to being a, a, a liquid again, and that's simply not the case. Water can exist as a gas uh, at much lower temperatures than 100 centigrade, and boiling point is simply the point at which adding more heat to a liquid causes it to turn to a vapor instead of increasing the temperature, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's not the exclusive temperature at which water can be a gas. It's simply the point at which it can no longer remain a water, remain like a liquid. And that's a very important distinction. Okay. Uh, we can we can see this in action every day. It, when you're talking about like sort of, you know, theoretically, it's like, okay, well, like, what are you talking about? Um, think about if you leave a glass out on your counter, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's only 10 degrees centigrade, if you leave it there for a week or a couple of days or whenever and come back and look, it will be gone, right? It will have evaporated mm-hmm. and become yep. a gas in your house or outside or wherever you left it, right? I have a fish so, tank in my room that proves this. Yeah. <laughs> Keep having to refill it. <laughs> so we definitely know from experience that water can become a gas and stay a gas well under the boiling point. Okay, now this may be logical, but I think I had this idea for a while that the humidity in the air was actually like a liquid form of water, which I know doesn't really make sense when I think about it, but I think I had the impression that like steam was the gaseous form of water and water vapor was just very tiny bits of solid water that was like spread out and suspended. Uh-huh. Uh, and-, and that's wrong. But to be clear, I think this is where the confusion comes in. That is what clouds are, right? Clouds are uh, water vapor, a gas that has condensed into a solid form of water. Or it's not solid, a liquid form of water, right? So, I mean, it's more solid than the gas. It's liquid, (laughs) so it's spread out, like you were saying. Yeah. So it's like you can have up in the sky both gaseous form of water and the liquid form of water that to us looks kind of, we think of clouds as being sort of like they're a fluffy. gas. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not, right? right. They're, they're liquid. So um, the microscopic droplets are spread out and very light so they can remain up in the air. When we're talking about humidity though, we're not talking about fog or clouds. We're only talking about the gaseous water in the air. So, okay. Hey. With all that background out of the way and some of that, make sure we're all in the same understanding. I have a thought experiment for you. Okay. I want you to imagine it's a very hot, humid summer day. I know. Hard to imagine. (laughs) So we're at like right now. We're at like swass swass level midnight. Okay. You you know the sort of day I'm talking about. So sweaty. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Uncomfortable to be outside, but there you are anyhow. You go for a walk and you're drawing big like lungfuls of that humid air into your body. Mm-hmm. And my question for you is, how does that feel to you? How would you describe the air? What does it feel like to walk through that humid air? Sticky. Heavy. Sticky, like, thick, heavy. It feels like like breathing in is a lot harder. Yeah. Absolutely. Kind of weighs yeah. on you. Yeah. So I'm hearing words like weighs on you, heavy, um, you know, thick. 
And I think we often describe human, humid air as being thick. We say the air is thick with humidity. You can feel it when you breathe in. If you're walking through it, it feels heavy. We call it soupy, perhaps. But dry air feels very different. It's like it basically isn't even there, right? <laughs> and we know water is fairly heavy because we go swimming in it and we carry containers of it around. Like we have experience with water. So how do you think the weight of humid air compares to the weight of dry air? Ooh, this feels like a trick question. I want it to be <laughs> heavier, Kirk. I want it to be heavier, but it isn't, is it? Well, this is no. one of the weirder, non-intuitive things I've encountered in my time as a naturalist. It sure Kirk. does. You know, I, I had the, the pleasure of teaching about weather, and Why? here's my little fact for the week. Humid air weighs less than dry air. That doesn't really make sense. No, I let me say that. it one more time. So humid air with all that water in it, right, mm-hmm. actually weighs less than dry air. And it's like, wh- what? Why? Like this, this goes against everything we think we experience in the world, right? Uh-huh. And so it's a hard concept for some people to wrap their head around. Uh, just, just like we talked about, humid air feels thicker, right? Well, when we breathe it in, it is more difficult to breathe water than air. Right, So if there is more water molecules in the air, it's going to feel a little harder to breathe. But that has nothing to do with like how thick the, or how heavy the actual air is. Um, if we look at the math involved, humid air is actually lighter than dry air. And I, I'm going to try to explain why. Liquid water is definitely denser than uh, gaseous air. I think right. we can all agree that it makes sense to us, right? That, if that's we add how this, gas works, yes. Right. If we add this dense water to less dense air, it must make the air denser. But herein lies the problem. We aren't talking about density. Yes, water is denser than air, but density is a measure of how closely packed together molecules are in a substance. Okay, Water isn't heavier than air because water molecules weigh more. It's heavier because, ta-da, it's a liquid. Right? Uh-huh. And liquids liquids have molecules packed together much more densely than gases. So our mistake right. in logic here is assuming that water retains the same density when it becomes a gas. And of course, it doesn't. But By it definition, doesn't. the change from water to gas is a change in density. Right. So what we really need to know is not how dense liquid water is, uh, but like how much does the gaseous water way and how does that compare to just like air that has just nitrogen and oxygen and and carbon dioxide and whatnot in it so here's a neat bit of info when it comes to gases at a given temperature they all have the exact same density so water vapor and air have the exact same density you cannot change the density of one gas by adding another that is the same temperature because in some ways temperature is actually another way to define how dense a gas is, okay. uh, which is weird, but that's kind of how it works. This is vaguely so, coming back to me from chemistry class. Okay, good. So what we want to look at is the weight of those gases. And I think we all know that water is hydrogen and oxygen, right? It retains mm-hmm. that H2O molecular bond when it's in its gaseous state. <laughs> so, you just straighten your glasses. <laughs> I sure did. I think we can all uh, <laughs> agree here. Um, so we're going to look at the weight of hydrogen and oxygen. Okay. okay? I think I, I think there's I a lot of numbers. There's numbers coming your way. So sit, sit, sit back. 
Oxygen is fairly heavy. I'm having like flashbacks. 16. It's okay. You guys were all gonna get through it. You're right. Very good. Oxygen has an atomic weight of 16. There's two atoms of hydrogen and one One. in a a molecule of water. If you look at your periodic table, very good. Uh, Hydrogen is number one on there. It's the lightest element. So if we add 16 plus one, we find out that the combined molecular weight of a water molecule is? 18. Anyone? 18. 18, very good. Now we need to compare that to the other gases in our atmosphere. We already know that Oxygen has a weight of 16, that's in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 but our atmosphere does not have free oxygen atoms floating around. We have molecular oxygen, O2. All right, that's two oxygen atoms bonded together. So right. their combined weight is 32. Uh, molecular oxygen is only 21% of our atmosphere. The rest is mostly nitrogen. Like oxygen, nitrogen also pairs up and we have N2. Molecular weight of nitrogen in the atmosphere is 28. Look, I know this is a lot of numbers. Let's just so pause and look at, let's just look at the three important ones. 18, mm-hmm. 28, and 32. Which molecule has the least mass at 18? I hate that. Water. Water. I hate it. It's water. water does. And I hate okay? it. So the ratio of oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere, that's irrelevant. We don't even need to do the math on that because no matter what, the water weighs less. When we add molecules of humidity, AKA mm-hmm. water vapor into the air. We aren't just adding more stuff to the same place. This is another kind of flaw in our brain thinking about it. We think about we have we have air and we're just gonna add something to it and it doesn't work that way. When we add water vapor, we displace other molecules when we add that water in. They don't just pack mm-hmm. in tighter. So for a given volume of air at a constant temperature, the volume of air with gaseous water in it, weirdly, strangely, will weigh less it may go against our common our common sense understanding but hopefully once all the pieces are in place we can see that air with water in it uh no matter how strange it is uh is actually lighter than dry air this is so disappointing that's what i have for you disappointing it's amazing i love it when it go like the the science sort of subverts our expectations of how we perceive the world and i think it's a great example of why we need to have science and really, mm-hmm. you know, look at the things that aren't intuitive because everything isn't always intuitive in the world. Right. Yeah. That's no, why you're, science you're... is so important. But my brain hurts, Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> it was very cool, though. Well, Thank you. Good. I'll rest your brain up. We're going to take a break and then we'll come right back. If you're listening to this podcast, you are at least a little strange by nature, just like us. Why not make it official? We're happy to announce the launching of our Patreon program, and it's called The Society of Strange. You can join today. You may have noticed we've been experimenting with not having ads on the show lately, and it has been great. But while we're not doing this for the money, doing a podcast like this can get expensive. We have web hosting fees, there's audio hosting fees, equipment fees, it all really adds up. By joining the Society of Strange, you can help us sustain the show and get some perks as well. All Society of Strange members get one of our swanky new water bottle stickers, and at higher levels of support you can get secret bonus content and even our studio voicemail number. Oh yes, excellent. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash strangebynature. All right, today I bring us all the way to the home of Steve Irwin. 
Whoa, hold on. No, no, no. Shocker. Rachel. Stop the presses. Are you doing a topic that involves Australia? Yes. Yes, I am. This I'm is so a shock. That's <laughs> first, first ever. Never. First ever time on the podcast. Um, but I'm going to talk about an animal that Steve Irwin wouldn't mess with. Uh, okay. okay. There's not many of them. This man wrestled alligators. Like, uh, So this is a large flightless bird. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is the heaviest bird in Australia, but it's also found in New Guinea, as discovered, I say with air quotes, by the Dutch in 1597. Written down in Western science. Uh, it's yep. the second heaviest bird after the ostrich. Uh, this week, I'm talking about the cassowary. Oh, oh they're so yes. cool. They're so cool. And um, scary. So terrifying. If you would like, what I... makes them? What makes them so scary? Excellent. Uh, so first off, before we get really in depth, the name cassowary comes from. Casu uh, meaning horned and wary meaning head, so horned head, which is uh, from Papa and origin. Papa, yeah. Papuan. Papuan. Thank you, Victoria, for the win. Um, there are three species of cassowary. I'm going to focus more on the generals between the three species because all of them are just absolutely wild. Um, not only that, but the differences between them are really not necessarily minute, but like specific. Anyway, so the largest is the southern or the double wattled cassowary, which stands at four to five point six feet tall. So Rachel sized. Rachel mm-hmm. sized. Yep. Yes. Yes. Maybe even a little bit bigger. And we could use that as like a, a unit of measure on the show. Rachel. Like they're about one Rachel. Rachel tall. About a Rachel tall. Perfect. Um, and up to about the females are 167 pounds and males are about 121 pounds. Okay. Bigger wow. females. The largest one. Yep. Larger females. Uh, the northern or the single wattled cassowary is the most recently learned of, I'd say, having been learned of in 1860. And again, learned of meaning learned of Western meaning science. Western yeah. science. Thank you. Yep. Uh, the smallest of these uh, three species is the dwarf cassowary, which stands at 3.2 to 3.6 feet tall and about 63 Whoa. pounds. So small and <laughs> tiny. Um, they are mo- most closely related to the emu. Uh, they're crepuscular, which means that they're super hard to study because they're yeah. fast and they live in the rainforest. That's really thick. <laughs> so good luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I believe I sent you both an email. All right. I am opening my email. Ooh. Excellent. Oh. Yeah. It's so colorful. Yes. Uh, Isn't I loved, it? There's a, and oh, well, dear, wow. Dear listeners. There are two photos Rachel has sent us. Yes, yes, uh, there are. One is of the whole bird, and one is of a dinosaur foot. With a giant, <laughs> scary claw. This is a, this is a, I've tried to describe it for you. This is uh, 
looks like a foot you might expect to see on like a velociraptor, although the, the, the claws or the talons, I guess you might call them, are very straight, not curved like you would see in a raptor. And there's an outstretched hand that this uh, foot is sitting on, mm -hmm. a human hand, and this is, I don't know, twice the size of a human hand. Yeah, the, yeah, the biggest it is. the biggest claw is fully the length of this person's hand. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll we'll get into that. Uh, so all right. this bird, uh, if you can all picture an emu or an ostrich in your brains, um, mm -hmm. it's covered in it's called a two quilled is what they're called, is um, black feathers. So they look like fine quills. They're very shiny. And it looks a lot like hair. It's very shiny. Uh, they don't have tail feathers, and they do not have a preen gland, so they don't preen mm. their feathers at all. Mm. Um, so for people to picture this, is, yes. are these just that central shaft, or I think it's the rachis of the feather? Is there anything coming off the sides, or is it just like a bunch of shafts that it's a, come off? It's a really thin feather. It does have some things on the side, but it's it's like an outer coating kind of thing. Is my understanding. Okay, so there's, so if they don't have that preening gland, they're, they're not having to keep those like flight feathers in good condition or anything like that. So, right. Well, I mean, they are a, as far as I can tell, they are a flightless bird. They are a flightless I, bird. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> they don't need to fly. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I know so, that also serves yeah. a purpose for like waterproofing and stuff. So it's interesting that they don't have that. Right. Especially living in the rainforest. Right. Correct. Uh, so these feathers, the way that they are um, made, help actually keep the bird dry and safe from thorns. Because uh, there's lots of thorns in this particular rainforest. Their face, mm -hmm. I don't know if you noticed, is their face and their neck have very vibrant colors, and it's a very Absolutely. big, uh, it's a very big difference between the black feathers of its body and the uh, brightness of its face. I would, yeah, this is like a, a blue yeah. neck with like white on top of the head. Mm -hmm. I'd say I'd call it like a royal blue neck, and then the top of its head looks almost aqua, like light aqua. Yeah, and perhaps. then there's some red accents and wattles hanging off toward the bottom of the blue part. Exactly. So oftentimes cassowaries, what they'll have is the their heads and their necks are either variations of blue or variations of red. Uh, this depends on the location of the of the cassowary as well as the species. It can be species specific. Uh, females, fun thing, are more brightly colored than males as well as being larger. Oh, that's unusual. Oh, God. Cool. Um, the wattles or the fleshy pouches of skin that hang from their neck. Yeah, you don't need to say the fra phrase <laughs> fleshy pouch. <laughs> Again. It already happened. Oh. Uh, these can be blue, red, gold. They can even be purple or white. Um, all. Are you aware, yes. Rachel? Are you aware? Can they change the colors of those? Like a turkey can change their head coloration? Do you know? Um, I think, from what I researched, they can. They can change those colors a little bit, but it's more of like making them bolder or making them like softer type thing. Very okay, similar not like to not not changing quite super exactly. dramatically. Okay. 
Um, all cassowaries have a cask or a helmet that develops on their head at about one to two years of age. I don't know if you both saw it. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, it's hard to miss. It's like a helmet on top like of the head. Like a giant top hat or something. Or a, right. Or a, if you think of the, um, like some boats have a running board that goes down underneath. Like that, except mm-hmm. sticking up vertically. Right. What What do you think it's uh, made of? Is it going to be hard or is it going to be soft? Or what do you think? I would guess um, like keratin, like a fingernail kind of deal. Mm-hmm. You're correct yeah, it there. Gives, it gives the look of something that was like a battering ram. Uh-huh. So it you would think hard. hard, but I also know that this podcast is called Strange by Nature, and you're probably going to surprise us. So <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It is it is covered in keratin, so you're right on that end, Victoria. But Yay. it's made of a sponge-like material, uh, oh, and it is like soft, oh. which is bizarre. And they can get so up to soft seven inches on the inches inside, or actually like okay, yeah, on the inside it's soft. So what's it for? So weird. What a good question. We don't know. Ooh. Oh, all right. Um, we're not sure what the exact purpose is. It could be dominance, a show of how old they are. It could be protection. Uh, it could help with their sound actually, because their booming like call is the lowest known call of any bird. It's almost out of human hearing range. It's so low. Oh, wow. So it's like a resonating chamber? Yeah, potentially. Hmm. We don't know. (laughs) Um, But keepers of cassowaries actually say they can feel the vibrations of that rumble. Uh, So when cassowaries feel threatened, they can feel that rumble in their bones. (laughs) Wow. That would be terrifying. Uh, This bird is also known as the most dangerous bird in the world. Um, Even Steve Irwin, like I mentioned, was quick to get away from the cassowary. Uh, They're solitary birds. They each have a three-toed foot, uh, which you were describing as a velociraptor foot or a dinosaur foot. Um, that it's got the lizard really, scales all over it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The really long claw on the end is actually their inner toe. And that can get up to five inches long. Uh, and this allows them to slice, slice open a predator or a threat with a single kick. Ugh. Okay. Uh, they can also, if you think you can run away, ha, huh, they can run up to 31 miles per hour. Think you can? That's uh, just slightly faster than me. Just a little bit. Uh, think you can climb a tree and get away? Ha! Nope. They can jump nearly seven feet straight up in the air. <laughs> that for our oh, listeners oh, at home, wow. that's about two Rachel. That's about one and a half Rachels. Okay. Um, wow. Think you can swim and get into a pond to get away from an angry cassowary? Ha! They can no, swim. They can't. No, they, they can swim. swim. <laughs> um, but if I can, if I fly, they can't follow me up into the air, right? You're correct there. Uh, okay, so as long as I can fly at least like feet. eight feet, yeah, eight I feet, should be good. Eight feet, you should be fine. Uh, okay, generally, I'll start working on that. <laughs> good luck. I really wish you luck. Um, generally, they'll also use that claw to search for forest uh, through the forest litter for food. Um, okay, because that's what I was thinking. They're frugivores. 
they eat fruit. Wow. Um, on a happier note, when breeding, uh, once the three to five eggs are laid, which are green, um, the female will move on to another male, and the male cassowary will incubate the eggs and look after the hatchlings. Hmm. The incubation is about 60 days, and the hatchlings will stay with dad anywhere from 9 to 16 months. Wow, good dads. Um, nice. Yeah, they're great dads. Cassowaries in expert care uh, live about 50 to 60 years. Uh, it's unknown in the wild oh how old they live. Um, and that's all I have, but I wanted to say the San Diego Zoo had a wonderful animal profile and it was super helpful for research. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. When we return from our break, it'll be Victoria. All right, and we're back. So as naturalists, many of us frequently work uh, hands-on with reptiles and amphibians. I'm yes. sure you guys yeah. do, right? My favorite Every part week. of the job. Yes. Uh, One these... of them, I suppose. They're pretty much the most frequent animal ambassadors that a nature center will have because um, they're pretty easy to take care of, right? Compared to like mammals right. or birds. Oh yeah, way, way easier than a mammal. Mm -hmm. So much easier. And a lot of them make really great teaching animals. And all this means that some of us have had to get comfortable with snakes. That's right, we have. You sound so happy there, Kirk. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> no, I actually like snakes. I've never had a problem with them. But I, I know certain naturalists, maybe including you, Kirk, you know, have, have had to. What, me? No, no. I love snakes. I love snakes. I think they're so cool. I think they're cool. You <laughs> <laughs> sounded so convincing. I do. I think they're very cool. I, I would not go so far as to say I love them. They, I, I think like a lot of people, they sort of creep me out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know? a lot of people are um, afraid of snakes. Yeah, but I've had, you know, I've, I've, I say have to, I've had the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to get to, to work with them and, and know that they can be real gentle and wonderful. Uh, you see people like snuggling up with pet snakes and I, that will never, ever be me. <laughs> well, you're in good, good, good company, Kirk. Uh, a lot of people are afraid of snakes and there's even some evidence that babies may be not, they're not naturally afraid of snakes, but they're actually inclined to be afraid of snakes and spiders. Uh -huh. They've done some experiments with that. Now, oh, yeah. here in Minnesota, yeah, well, I think it was like pictures of, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. I don't remember the details of that study. Yeah, it was, it was snakes with the, they showed like little kids, the different colored snakes with patterns on them. And they were like more afraid of the ones that had diamond patterns, which tends to be correlated with uh, venomous snakes. Snake. And it, very interesting. I'd, I'd love to look at the methodology on that. And, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Here in Minnesota, there is not much logical reason to be afraid of snakes since there are almost no venomous snakes in the state. And we have no. timber rattlesnakes in one little corner of the state, but they're pretty rare even in that area. However, mm -hmm. in many parts of the world, there are, of course, venomous snakes that can be quite dangerous or deadly to humans. So it's, it's good to have a healthy respect for snakes. This is right. all to say that probably a lot of our listeners may not be big fans of snakes or may even have a phobia, even though, you know, we all think snakes are really cool and are comfortable at this point handling them. We're uh -huh. tolerant of right. it. <laughs> if you're Kirk. Comfortable, comfortable. Okay. It's fine. That's a good word. So how would you feel about a flying snake? Why do you do this, Victoria? 
Hmm. You knew every, there were slithering snakes. You know, uh, Victoria, <laughs> uh, first you started off uh, a little while back with the flying spiders. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now you're, you're bringing people flying snakes. Fears, you just really you? don't want anyone to sleep at night, do it's you? It's my nefarious I'm back to, agenda. You know, face mites. <laughs> yeah, I'm here to disturb your sleep. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction, though, that what you're going to talk about is not actually flying. Wait, right? is this like Might the... Right. Have you ever read the story Verde? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it like that? Um, kind of, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Um, All right, I'm excited. So snakes slither, snakes climb. You, you probably knew about sidewinding snakes. You probably even knew that there were swimming snakes. But you mm-hmm. might not have known about the flying snakes. And I am exaggerating a little bit, as you alluded to. The snakes are actually gliding or... To quote the article I read, strategically falling. <laughs> um, Beautiful. I'm going to use that for any time I fall now. Strategically I'm, falling. I'm strategically yeah. testing. <laughs> no, the you're strategically. Yeah, you're. You say you're flying. You got to go oh, all in. Flying. I was flying. Right. Um, so this is a. I got a lot of my information from this New York Times article from June 29th, 2020, by David Waldstein. It's really great. You should check it out. Um, but not all snakes do this. So the ones that can quote unquote fly are members of the genus uh, Chrysopala, Chrysopalea, which lives in the forests of Southeast Asia. And they, we don't know a ton about them because they tend to stay in the mid canopy of the forest and they are rarely on the ground. So you don't see them a whole lot. When they fly, it, it basically can look like a big old snake just sort of falling and wiggling and randomly landing on another tree branch. Strategically falling. Strategically falling. But it turns out the movements are, in fact, very deliberate, and they can fly up to 25 meters or more. So that's... Okay, wow. That's like 80 feet. That's much further than I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, that's... I I don't know the exact numbers, but that seems fairly comparable to, like, a flying squirrel who's gliding down, you know? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I would suppose so, yeah. So the way it does this is the snake will first slide its body most of the way off the branch it's on, and it'll hang on by its tail, and then it'll look to pick the spot it's aiming for. So then it launches itself off the branch. So this is sort of like that story Verity that you mentioned. Um, But then it flattens out its ribs and it sucks in its stomach so that its whole body is kind of made into a C-shape, like a concave and basically, it turns its body into an airfoil, and then it oh, wow. it wiggles in its snaky kind of way until it lands on its target. I know the listeners can't see this, but I started contorting my body to see how <laughs> I would do it, as if. Can I you was make a yourself snake. into an airfoil, Rachel? I cannot. No, my ribs are very much locked in place. <laughs> Although, if you if you stick your hand out the car window, which I think we all did as children, right? Oh, yeah. you move it up and down. That's your your mate. You you know that effect and what that feels mm-hmm. like. Ooh, that is a fun thing to do. Um, I, I I do I do it all the time as an adult. <laughs> yep. And no one can tell me to put my hands back in the car. As the driver, it is your prerogative. Mm-hmm. My my prerogative prerogative to lose a limb if I so choose. Back to the snakes, though. But car- but, but carry <laughs> yes, on, yeah. Snakes. Uh, so some researchers at Virginia Tech were actually able to observe some of these snakes in captivity and to record what happened. 
And they discovered that these uh, undulations back and forth, in addition to the airfoil shape, were crucial for successful flight. So they actually had high-speed cameras set up from a bunch of different angles, and then they were able to record the snakes and make a computer model of the snake's flight. And then they were able Mm -hmm. to tweak it in different ways to kind of like take out different wiggles or whatever. Um, Oh, wow. They found there were not just the side-to-side motions, but also up and down waves. And the waves of the side-to-side and the up and down were calibrated to each other. So the up and down were twice the frequency of the side-to-side waves. And they discovered that both of those are crucial for flight stability. And if you took out any portion of that, it would just like collapse in a heap, basically. Um, So super cool. And actually, the Department of Defense is really interested in flying snakes for potential robot development. Oh gosh, I I, oh, I was having flashbacks <laughs> to the bat the, the bat bomb story. Bat bomb. Like, no, 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 no. I don't my, I don't want the Department of Defense to like we're gonna deploy the snakes. <laughs> okay, if you were an invading force or like in a war and all of a sudden a bunch of snakes drop and they start flying, I would be done too. <laughs> well it, it does give new meaning to, to snakes on a plane. It does sound scary, <laughs> but that is actually not why DOD is interested in it. It's because a snaky right. shape like that is especially good for search and rescue in like earthquakes mm. or you know, rubble from mm-hmm. bombings or whatever. So if you had right, a right. robot that could do that kind of thing and then travel to another spot on its own. And fling itself off yes, about, you know, somewhere basically. again. Yeah. So that's why they're interested. Very cool. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, so that's what I have about flying snakes today. So cool. Less oh my gosh. This is so cool. Like I, what a great show, you guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.